0: The political showdown over judicial reforms continues in israel as west bank terrorism and iranian nuclear escalation grows we'll talk to israel's ambassador to the united states michael herzog about these and many more hot topics coming right up don't push pause you're listening to jewish insiders podcast and welcome back to jewish insiders podcast can't wait to get to our special guest, Ambassador Michael Herzog, who was appointed Israel's ambassador to the United States in the summer of 2021 by yeah Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, and yet still the ambassador today hauled over into the new government under under Prime Minister Netanyahu, so served now under three prime ministers: Bennett, Lapid, and Netanyahu. Ambassador Herzog is a retired IDF brigadier general, held senior positions in Israel's Ministry of Defense between 2001 and 2009, was a senior military aide to four ministers of defense and then chief of staff to a minister of defense, Uh, has not uh, been foreign to Washington, did spend some time here with the Washington Institute for Near East Policy as a senior fellow. Uh, and also a senior fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute. He's a graduate of the prestigious National Defense College in Israel, received an MA from Haifa University, BA from Hebrew University. Ambassador Herzog is married to Shireen Herzog, a corporate lawyer, as father of two. Ambassador Herzog, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be on the podcast.
0: Great to have you with us. Uh, Just very recently this week, you spoke uh, to a large conference uh, and said a couple of very noteworthy things I wanted to touch on on Iran first, if we could. First, uh, that you see the U.S. and Israel much closer to each other on the Iran threat than in years past. And second, that you don't see the Iran nuclear deal as on the table, in your words, off the table for now. I want to talk about the first comment uh, first. And, and that is, what exactly do you mean when you say you see the U.S. and Israel much closer on Iran today? I think many of us who look at this on a regular basis say, well, there still seems to be a strategic objective disconnect, that the policy of the United States still is in principle to have a nuclear deal, that the, Israel doesn't agree with that. There may be secret messages being passed, a prisoner deal, $7 billion in South Korea, even just this week, you know, potentially holding back a censure resolution at the IAEA in Vienna. So I'd love to understand in your view, what is it that is aligning right now between Washington and Jerusalem on the Iran issue?
1: So uh, when I arrived here uh, 15 months ago, the U.S. was heading towards a nuclear deal with Iran and actually got uh, very close to uh, a JCPOA 2.0. Uh, and of course uh, there was a difference of opinion between our government and the US government. I'm talking about uh, the previous Israeli government, but of course also the current Israeli government. I must say that on Iran, there is no opposition coalition in Israel. There is a broad consensus, and we are concerned that the US is uh, entering a, a weak deal, weaker even than the original 2015 JCPOA. So, uh, when I look at where we were then, and where we are today, uh, as I mentioned publicly, the deal is uh, uh, off the table for now. It's not dead, but it is off the table for a variety of reasons. The Iranian maximalist positions in the negotiations, the fact that they have kept advancing their nuclear program to dangerous levels, which make uh, a deal um, less worthy for the international uh, community along the original lines. And uh, more recently, uh, and no less importantly, is the fact that Iran uh, is developing very close relations with Russia, providing uh, drones uh, which are being used in Ukraine against civilians and civilian infrastructure uh, in what appears to be more and more a strategic alliance and, of course, the uh, internal repression inside Iran against those who uh, were rising, seeking liberties, and uh, the Iranians in a very heavy-handed way butchered the hundreds of their own people, plus uh, the reality of Iran continuously uh, targeting targeting people here on U.S. soil, um, American officials or previous officials. So taken together, this created an environment that, that, that does not lend itself to uh, going back to a deal with Iran. The U.S. strategy vis-a-vis Iran over the last decade plus was looking at, looking at Iran through the prism of a nuclear deal, trying to reach a nuclear deal, trying to revive a nuclear deal, uh, and now that the deal is off the table, we are uh, into a dialogue, very close dialogue with the U.S. administration. We just had yesterday a a group of Israeli experts um, doing a strategic dialogue with the administration about Iran, and what we are discussing is a holistic strategy that factors in. Of course, what's happening in the nuclear field, but the other um, other factors as well, Iranian uh, destabilizing activities in the region, the cooperation between Iran and Russia, the internal situation in Iran and other factors uh, as well. Uh, so when I say that we are closer today, um, uh, it is in the sense that we both understand that in the foreseeable future, they may not be a deal much as the U.S. desires to have a deal. And we have to work on a holistic strategy. Things don't stand still. That's where we are. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything. We see eye to eye on everything, but we are definitely closer today.
2: And Ambassador, take us, uh, you know, so you say for now, what do you think would have to change uh, vis-a-vis the American position for there to be a serious consideration of a of a nuclear deal or or uh, something like that? Or, or is it not just about nuclear now? Is it much broader? Would any deal have to be broader and address, as you said, destabilization efforts, uh, you know, terrorist efforts, things like that?
1: Well, the way I see it right now, uh, looking at the Iranian positions and looking at the uh, U.S. positions. I see it very hard, increasingly hard, to bridge the gaps and uh, go back to uh, what's called the JCPOA. And I think uh, people have to, if if diplomacy is an option, or if circumstances uh, arise that allow for a resumed diplomatic effort. I uh, would bet that uh, the parties would not discuss this deal, maybe a deal, maybe some kind of a deal, and all sorts of versions. I don't want to go uh, into them analytically, but there are various options. But it seems to me extremely difficult to bridge the gaps uh, between the two parties, um, and they will have to think about uh, uh, a different type of a deal Um, People mention all sorts of options, less for less, more for more, uh, freeze for freeze, I don't know, I don't want to analyze it, but uh, we talk about different options. For us in Israel, we, we never said that we are against diplomacy per se, but I think if I had to single out one element which was most troubling for us back in 2015, uh, and now when the U.S. was negotiated, uh, uh, negotiating a renewed deal with Iran, it is a sunset. And I, I certainly hope that if the parties go back to the table at one point, the deal that we discuss uh, will not include a, a, a similar model of sunsets as were previous deals.
0: Ambassador, there seems to be a tension, in my view, of... In one, in one hand, an acknowledgement that the situation is such that Iran has made a decision on their own to go in certain directions that make it unavailable for the United States to revive the 2015 nuclear deal. And I've heard the same machinations of various interim deals and freezes and things that sound terrible to me that, that, that maybe some people in the Biden administration have cooked up um, that, again, are still not on the table today because Iran would say no to those as well. And yet, if you were to still stay in some sort of a framework of a deal and say, oh, these sunsets are bad, we got to get rid of the sunsets. Iran's never going to negotiate away the sunsets. We have another sunset coming in October of the missile embargo that impacts the Ukraine issue in Russia. And the only way to stop those sunsets, only way to really break the framework that we all sort of agree is dead, is to snap back the UN Security Council resolution uh, in New York. And yet there seems to be no appetite to do that for fear that that will give Iran some excuse to escalate and blame the United States or blame Europe. Is that part of the conversation today? Is, is, do, you, do you feel that there is potential hope that snapback is on the table, that that could be pursued before the next sunset in October?
1: So uh, in our conversations with uh, the administration about a, an Iran strategy, the main focal point, I mentioned a holistic strategy that factors in various dimensions, but for us as a center of any strategy uh, must stand enhance deterrence vis-a-vis Iran, both American deterrence and Israeli deterrence. Um, so when you look at the pressures put on Iran, economic pressures, political pressures, and so on, They there ought to be, in our view, a backbone of a credible military threat behind these pressures. And historically, you will see that only uh, such a backbone really managed to uh, stop Iran or get Iran to change course. There are some historic precedents. In 2003, and I can give you uh, other precedents, but that's the way uh, we see it. We believe that uh, deterrence vis-à-vis Iran has, uh, <clears throat> has been eroded uh, over time, and it should be revived and enhanced. I'm not saying it's, uh, it's totally not there, but uh, it should be enhanced definitely. I think both countries agree that uh, this is uh, the case. So it's not only discussing uh, snapback. Snapback is one tool in a toolbox that must contain other elements. But again, for us, in our thinking, a central theme is uh, having a credible military threat facing Iran. Uh, You can call it a last resort threat, but still, it has to be there. And when I say credible, I mean credible in Iranian eyes. They have to believe there will be consequences to certain things they they do. Uh, They have advanced their nuclear program to dangerous levels, uh, and they should realize that if they continue to cross certain thresholds, there will be consequences, including a potential uh, kinetic response.
2: Ambassador we talk about the credible military threat and the time ticking on uh, on the Iranian nuclear program. How much time is there uh, before there is some sort of point of no return where you think that um, you know it will it will it will cross a threshold where Israel, the United States, or both have to act in a in a more kinetic way. Uh, are we there yet? Are we close to there yet? Um, how would you right. characterize it?
1: I don't want to be very specific, but I will say that we all know that uh, in terms of enrichment, Iran reached a very dangerous point, um, as was made public recently. Breakout time towards uh, one bomb's worth of uh, military grade enriched uranium is measure, measured measured in, in in weeks, maybe sometime between a week and two weeks. Uh, I just um, A Pentagon official mentioned 12 days, but it's a very short time frame. Breakout time is is very, very short, and that's a very dangerous point because if Iran decides to cross that line, and we're talking about crossing to military-grade enrichment, currently they enrich to 60%. As the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency said, no country with a, a, a truly civilian program enriches to 60%. Uh, but if they decide to cross the line of 90%, which is military-grade enrichment, that definitely will not leave, uh, certainly not Israel indifferent, but I believe others as well.
2: Ambassador, there's been a lot of ink spilled in the American press, and the American Jewish press, particularly uh, on those left of center about Israel's finance minister and the head of the Religious Zionist Party. Uh, recently the president, your brother, criticized the British Jewish community's board of deputies for boycotting a visit by the finance minister. There'll be a si- similar boycott we hear by some in America, uh, and some are even calling on the Biden administration to not issue a visa, which I don't even know if that's illegal under US law, Rich, but uh, we can could, we, could, we could get the fact checkers on that. But. What do you do you think it's wrong for Americans and, and Americans in politics to uh, make their displeasure about the current government's policies on a number of things known with, with that particular reaction?
1: I, I, I would advise uh, people here in the US to be very careful the way they they address the situation in Israel. We, yeah, we have a new government. It's a different government. It's more right wing than previous governments. 71% of our population participated in free, fair elections, and this is the outcome. Uh, and uh, so I understand that there are people who uh, don't like that outcome or criticize it, but it is an outcome of a, a democratic process. Now, in terms of um, Minister Smotrich, uh, there was a wave of protest here in the U.S. following uh, what he said about uh, wiping out the village of uh, Hawara. Uh, he himself took back his words. He explained in an interview in Israeli TV that it was the wrong choice of words. That he didn't mean to wipe out a village, but rather uh, more. You know, we should be more aggressive in targeting terrorists and their supporters Uh, and following that the Prime Minister also went public and said that uh, it shouldn't have been said and it's not our policy and I myself uh, made a statement to CNN uh, immediately after he made his statement saying it is not our policy and it is against our values. I don't want to go publicly into debate of whether we should visit and uh, and whether we should be issued a, a visa. Uh, I, I hear those voices. As you can imagine, I get uh, tons of questions and emails and uh, phone calls. Uh, I've been I'm being approached by numerous uh, people and organizations. We, uh, we hear the voices in Israel. I mean, some people are more concerned about the judicial reform. Some people are more concerned about the Israeli-Palestinian context. Uh, obviously, Uh, The pictures uh, coming out of Israel raise a lot of questions and concerns. We understand that. I I would differentiate between the two cases. When it comes to judicial reform, I would say that uh, we in Israel are having today a constitutional debate, the like of which we've never had in our 75 years of independence. I believe you and the U.S. had it uh, in the early 19th century uh we never had it it's about the separation of powers and uh, the feeling that uh uh, the balance between the branches was disrupted over time uh so is the new proposed reform striking the the right balance this is a big debate uh, in israel and and you see the demonstrations and you see the pushback and you see the criticism i would say that um I, I believe people should judge the outcome and not the process itself. Let's see what will be the outcome. As you know, there are calls also from within the coalition uh, to find a compromise or a solution that will be acceptable to uh, most Israelis or most Israelis can feel comfortable with. Uh, I'm very hopeful that that will be the case. And uh, I'm sure the discourse will change if that happens. On the Israeli-Palestinian issue, we have a, an extremely complex situation. And at the core of this is the fact that uh, the Palestinian Authority is weakened, lost control over parts of the West Bank. There is proliferation of uh, heavily armed groups who have carried out a wave of terror attacks against Israeli Israelis. I mean, because the PA doesn't confront them, we have to send the IDF to take action against them. And unlike the past, uh, given the nature of things on the ground, every entry into uh, Palestinian cities or refugee camps turns into a battle with a heavier toll of casualties on both sides. We see it all the time. What we've been trying to do is to arrest this negative dynamic and to reverse it. Uh, We are certainly uh, willing to uh, make an effort for de-escalation. We participated in the Aqaba meeting recently hosted by Jordan uh, and the center of the discussion was exactly uh, this. And I think, uh, yes, there are pressures on both sides. There are also pressures from within our own coalition. Uh, uh, As you know, some of the ministers in the coalition Uh, like Ministers Mortrich and Benvir, come to the government with a certain ideology, uh, which is different uh, from the ideology of uh, many other ministers in the government. But ultimately, uh, in our system, uh, decisions are taken by the Cabinet and by the Prime Minister, and that will continue to be the case.
2: Ambassador, I want to I want to take a, uh, a detour for half a second and ask you what it's like when the president of Israel and the ambassador of the United States get together for Shabbos. Like, is there a lot of work talk, or is it is it not work talk? Some families have, you know, when when folks are in the same uh, industry and they work together, uh, they they have strict rules not to talk shop at the at the Shabbos table. What's it like when the Herzog family gets together for uh, for a family occasion?
1: So. It is no secret that the president of Israel is my brother. Um, he's very close to my heart and I wish him well. Uh, but we, along the years, um, uh, you know, going back to when I was in uniform in the IDF and he was a politician, we always drew a line. Uh, so I never went into politics. And there are certain issues uh, which he didn't touch on, and we always knew how to draw the line. And that is the case today. I represent the Israeli government here in the U.S. He has his own role, uh, and we don't mix the two.
2: Okay, Rich, you have a serious question. I just needed to ask that because-
0: Well, it's it's all related. I I do have a question and that is um, just to go back a little bit to the judicial reform uh, piece that that you talked about and go a little deeper there. We've obviously seen a lot of voices from Israel uh, calling out to the diaspora, asking diaspora uh, community members to speak out um, on this. We've seen- uh, Jewish community leaders, people who are in banking and people who are in the finance sector, politicians, Mike Bloomberg, just with a very, 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 you know, unexpected uh, opinion piece ahead of his trip to Israel. Obviously, in the last government, right, we had a centrist government, left of center in some, in some ways, diverse Arab party involved. And there was still BDS. There were still critics of Israel. There was still the anti-Israel lobby in America. And now we have a right-wing government. And I think it could be easy for some in Israel to say, they hated us when we had Bennett and Lapid. They hate us when we have Netanyahu. It's not about what government we have. They just they just hate Israel. You know, and this is our country. We live here. This is our politics. You know, keep, you know, keep out of this. Um at the same time, though, when you hear a Mike Bloomberg write, writing up and when you hear a major American figure, a major leader of the Jewish community, rabbis speaking out, does that have an impact on the government in a different kind of way? If, you know, when it breaks the mold, people who would normally stay silent when they say, hey, I, I think this is getting out of hand. This, this is worrying to
1: me. So to me, it indicates that uh, uh, those people, almost all of them deeply care about Israel. Uh, they are entitled to uh, other voices and thoughts and, uh, and, and concerns, and their voices are heard uh, back home. I, I have no idea how the debate over the judicial reform will end. I know that there are behind-the-scenes efforts to bring about a solution, as I said, that will be most Israelis will feel comfortable with, uh, and, and voices from, uh, from America or from uh, world Jewry uh, are, are heard in Israel and people understand that. So, the only thing I tell people is, first, don't be judgmental before there is an outcome. Okay, we are in the middle of that debate, we are in the middle of that process. And don't inject yourself into uh, the internal Israeli debate with a, a um, judgmental uh, point of view before we have an outcome. Let's, uh, you want to raise concerns, questions, uh, air some warning, all is well, but, but be careful uh, the way uh, you air it and don't be judgmental before uh, we reach a certain outcome that you can judge. The second thing I say in relation to what uh, you said is that we're still surrounded by enemies and we're still subjected to a campaign of uh, bds and our enemies do not distinguish between uh, uh, those who support judicial reform and those who oppose judicial reform left and right they just don't want us to be there and we have to be aware of us and even i i say to those who Criticize the state of Israel that criticism is legitimate, if you want to criticize, uh, criticize certain policies, but do not cross the line of uh, joining the hands of providing backwind to those uh, who want to delegitimize us, who cast a question mark of our very right to exist as a nation state of the Jewish people. And that's a very fundamental point, uh, which I make to everybody.
2: Ambassador, what's your relationship like with US Ambassador to Israel Tom Knights? He was recently, uh, there was an article in Tablet Magazine, which criticized um, him for maybe crossing that line and getting too uh, into the inner debate over Israeli internal politics. Uh, I know you, you sort of inhabit the same space as him, although you're in separate cities. Uh, what's your guys's, what, what is your relationship like? And do you think he crossed that line uh, past legitimate criticism of policy?
1: So, uh, I have uh, very good relations with uh, Ambassador Tom Nides. We speak a lot. Um, we really speak a lot. And uh, to the extent that um, I have something to say to him about uh, <laughs> his public iterations, I say it privately to him.
2: Rich does the same thing for me, Ambassador, by the way, when he doesn't like something I've said. So, I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm curious for other ambassadors in Washington and the diplomatic corps. Obviously, Israel uh, has found itself at the center of many issues, the uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict. Um, There are Ukrainian and Russian diplomats, obviously, uh, who serve in the diplomatic corps. Um, You also have the Abraham Accords continuing, expanding and looking to deepen. And you have Abraham Accords ambassadors also in Washington. There's also a Saudi ambassador in Washington, and we know – that you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu has talked about that being the next step in in normalization. Possibly, can you talk about your interactions with these types of missions? Do, do you meet with the Ukrainian ambassador, the Russian ambassador, the Saudi ambassador? Maybe that would be real news. But uh, you know, the uh, the Abraham Accords ambassadors. How, how do you use your position here in some of these larger strategic international issues?
1: Uh, so it's an excellent question. I certainly meet with uh, many ambassadors and I, I try to the best of my ability to leverage the fact that uh, we are senior representatives of our government, all of us here in uh, Washington, D.C. So uh, we, convey, we can convey messages to our respective leaderships on uh, policy issues and we certainly do that. I uh, meet uh, from time to time the Ukrainian ambassador, we know each other well. I haven't met the Russian ambassador. I am in close touch with uh, my colleagues uh, representing Abraham Accords uh, countries and other countries in the region. Uh, I meet also with ambassadors from countries with whom we do not have formal diplomatic relations And I I, I find it uh, a really a very effective diplomatic tool to work with them and through them. And I can say without elaborating that on more than one occasion, uh, I found it possible to advance certain uh, policy lines or policy initiatives through my colleagues here in Washington, D.C.
2: Ambassador, what do you make of the state of U.S.-Israel relationships vis-a-vis Capitol Hill? Um, you know, there we, we we hear a lot about uh, the squad and the radical left, and I would I would talk about the isolationist right. Um, and
0: I'll I'll talk about them too. They're yeah, no, no, I know, I know you will More.
2: because you're a good man, Rich. Yeah. Um, but what what do you make? You know, zooming out, what do you make of the current state of U.S. Israel relationship, of the U.S. Israel relationship as it relates to the uh the, the U.S. Congress?
1: I spend a lot of time on the hill. And uh, it is my policy, this is the policy of our government, uh, both the previous government and the current government, to invest in uh, bipartisanship, to maintain Israel as a bipartisan issue. Uh, I will say that uh, there are some challenges coming with that because of the political polarization here in the US. So it is increasingly difficult to get sometimes uh, both parties here in the U.S. Uh, to, uh, to support certain initiative, even though separately they, they are supportive of Israel. I think the basis of support for Israel on the Hill is still uh, broad and strong. Yes, there are those who uh, raise questions or criticize us. Uh, I do not talk to the most extreme edges Uh, So you mentioned the squad, Uh, I have no dialogue with them because I don't think they want a dialogue with me or uh, are interested in anything I have to say. And uh, uh, unfortunately, that is the case, so I don't talk to them. But uh, short of that, uh, I talk to uh, everybody, including... uh, uh, On the progressive side, we have a dialogue. I think it's important to talk to them. We may disagree, but I want them to listen to me. I want them to, before they sign a letter, to talk to me and uh, hear my point of view or Israel's point of view. Uh, And I've worked very hard to generate and foster this kind of uh, engagement uh, with them. It is important, and they will continue to do so.
0: And, and a Jewish insider actually reported on one of those engagements very recently. Katie Porter, uh, who eventually went on to, to visit Israel, an audience with Premier Netanyahu, credited a meeting with you uh, on uh, that.
1: That is true. I met her and we discussed her upcoming visit uh, in Israel. And I, I, again, I meet a lot of legislators and uh, we have very open discussions. Um, sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree but uh, we have to keep talking. I also will say that uh, on more than one occasions, uh, I managed to connect uh, uh, legislators on both sides of the aisle um, uh, in the context of uh, Israeli-American relations, and this is something that, that is important.
0: Ambassador, uh, to go back to one of the issues you talked about earlier, we talked about the delegitimization campaign, uh, and that's still happening in the background, one of the things we've seen, I've seen, studied, and I'm wondering if you're tracking this issue, if the Israeli government is tracking this, is the issue of BDS embedding itself in what's called ESG, Environment, Social, Governance, Investing a uh, company like morningstar big financial research firm uh, in the news jewish insider has covered this extensively their ratings today inside esg blacklist israeli banks cell phone companies 28 firms that have some connections in israel using all the classic bds assumptions and sources just like you know ben and jerry's style only using investment ratings as the tool of pressure are, is the israeli government following this are you worried about this Are you engaging with these companies at all or with other stakeholders who are involved in the ESG investment world to to flag this as a worry?
1: We are well aware of this phenomenon. We are following it and uh, we are also taking action. I don't want to elaborate publicly what kind of action we are taking, uh, but uh, we are not indifferent to this uh, phenomenon. I think we, 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 we understand the significance of this and uh, all i will say is that we are very active on this front.
2: ambassador we're going to ask you one last substantive question then we're going to take you to the lightning round which is everybody's favorite part of coming on the jewish insider limited liability podcast uh how do you assess the state of uh israel diaspora relations today
1: there are, there are challenges i can speak about um, Israel's relations with the U.S. Jewry. I don't want to talk about uh, the rest of the world. I'm responsible for okay. the U.S. I'll talk about Fair the enough. U.S. Uh, there are definitely challenges. Uh, a lot of them uh, have nothing to do with us directly. It means uh, they emanate from uh, uh, developments here within uh, the U.S. Uh, diaspora be it, uh, uh, distancing from Israel, uh, in, uh, intermarriage, uh, issues of education, Jewish education, and so on. Um, but some of it, of course, has to do with uh, the interaction with Israel, the way they look at Israel. We uh, get a lot of questions about the relations between state and religion in Israel, Israel's attitude towards non-Orthodox uh, communities. Uh, of course, judicial reform and uh, what's happening in the Israeli-Palestinian scene. Um, I am more focused on the young generation because I think uh, the bigger problem is among the young. And uh, I'm trying to uh, force some initiatives uh, about uh, engagement, about uh, programs together, about bring the, bringing them to Israel to see Israel's reality with their own eyes. I think it's uh, one of the more powerful tools that we have to engage uh, with the Jewish community. Uh, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture as if there are no challenges. There are challenges. Uh, I think it requires a long term strategy uh, on our part. And I think we shouldn't be alone in this. We should. uh, work together with partners here in the U.S. uh, within the Jewish establishment, outside of the Jewish establishment. Uh, I I definitely think we can and should do more, and I'm trying to push in that direction. Fantastic. Rich, you want to ask the first lightning round? You ready?
0: It's the classic one. I know you've studied for it. Do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase?
1: I do, but I'm afraid it's not politically correct. <laughs> it's okay. It can it's be okay. so. Can
0: we allow profanity. Yeah, we allow Fine. profanity as long
1: as it's not it's in English.
0: It's in Yiddish. If somebody figures it out, then, then, it'll, then it'll be
1: So, bad, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, before I came here, uh, a friend of mine told me, uh, there will be moments when you will be very upset. Uh, people will enrage you. Uh, So, uh, And you're a diplomat, you're supposed to uh, keep a poker face. Uh, But there there is, uh, when you're really upset with someone, there is an Yiddish saying which I was taught uh, as a young person by by a family member. Uh, I will not uh, name that family member, but uh, uh, that saying is uh, my uh, My ass and your face are two So <laughs> that's great, <laughs> um,
0: Ambassador. That 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 could be like the top. So ever. I like I don't allow
1: myself to say it when uh, I'm upset with people here, but on your program. I'll release it. <laughs> so, <Fed. laughs> we just buried the, lead. buried the lead there. Ambassador, there
2: you're known for your Shabbat dinners in Washington, D.C. Who is your favorite guest you've ever had for Shabbat dinner in your time as ambassador?
1: My favorite guest for Shabbat dinner? Yeah. Uh, that's a tough one. I haven't uh, thought about it. Uh
0: could be favorite duo. Maybe you had a duo. I know you have bipartisan members. Yeah. That's the rumor that you have uh, uh, members of Congress over, Republicans and Democrats uh, sometimes for Shabbat dinner. Any uh, any duo or group or I, special event? I, I, will, that you had? I will tell you
1: something. I recently had uh, a Shabbat dinner with uh, two members of Congress from opposing parties. Uh, who never spoke to each other before they came to my home. And they spent three hours talking to each other about very important issues. So they were certainly favorite Shabbat guests.
0: Okay. Uh, what is the, your favorite Israeli wine to serve those guests at your dinners?
1: My favorite Israeli wine is called Agaman. Agamon in Hebrew is a type of a reddish color. Um uh, we have a specific type of uh, grape in Israel, which is unique only to Israel. Nowhere in the world can you find it. It is called al and that wine uh, is an excellent Israeli wine, which I like to serve my guests at uh, Shabbat dinners. All
2: right, Ambassador, last question. Who is your favorite Israeli president who you are not related to?
1: Not related
2: to. Not related to. It would be too easy to say your brother. So, your favorite Israeli president who you're not related to?
1: Um, Okay. Um, I'm debating between between, uh, several uh, presidents, but uh, I have very high regard for our, of course, first president, uh, Chaim Weizmann. Uh, Not necessarily for his role as president, but for his role before becoming president in uh, leading uh, uh, the Jewish establishment for many years, in bringing about the Balfour Declaration and working with um, world powers to advance the the cause of the self-determination of the Jewish people in our own ancestral homeland. uh, So for that, I hold him in high uh, regard. Uh, When it comes to uh, other Israeli presidents which are not family members, I would mention our second president, Itzhak Ben-Tzvi, was also a very serious scholar about uh, Jewish communities uh, across the globe. He wrote uh, a book about it, which uh, is worth uh, reading. Uh, and, of course, uh, Shimon Peres. Excellent.
0: Ambassador Michael Herzog, thank you so much for joining the podcast, and uh, happy Purim.
1: Thank you very much. Poem samer. happy poem. Well,
0: if you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because that's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Jewish Insiders Podcast. Thanks for listening.